Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the room tonight. Before we go on with the show, thank you. Have a dedication for everybody. Yes, Tony. We want to send our, our best thoughts and prayers out to the people in Oregon and in California, and especially to the 34 people for the 
families that uh, they are missing. Um, we want to give, give our best thoughts, and we ask our, our listeners to have a good thought for those people. Uh, at this point, there is uh, approximately 10% of the population of Oregon has been displaced by the fires. So that's a tremendous loss, and uh, we hope and pray that uh, they get it under control soon. I'm with you, Frank, 100%. Also, you have to keep in mind the people in uh, the panhandle of Florida, too, and Mobile, Alabama, all the way down to Louisiana, where they were just inundated with water. Exactly right. Our prayers are out there for him, Frank, no doubt about it. Sure, like to just our hosting guests uh, from the beautiful area of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Mr. Roger Handler, from New Jersey Shore, Mr. Don Henderson, Indiana Dallas, Mr. Frank Carroll, and our guest our guest guest of honor is Mr. Roy Cummings. Roy, how are you doing tonight? Guest of honor. Okay, I moved up in stature. How about that? I don't want to do something special. You're always at the top always of the nice dial, to be a guest Roy. of honor. <laughs> hey guys, how are we doing? Good. You? Roy? Very right, good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, gentlemen, I got a rate. I got I rate and a rate. Well, the over the goal should been a goal in overtime. But remember, guys, 1980, Bobby Nystrom of the New York Islanders is offside. And he broke over fire hearts. And Doc Emmerich, give him, give him credit for that. That's what he said, waiting for the decision on it. Well, it was supposed to be, was full, supposed to be for the Tampa Bay Lightning. I got to give, give Doc Emmerich the, the credit for what he said about that. And Roger, Don, Frank, and myself, all fire fans at that time, when he said that was, when he said that was a goal, and Nation was offside, I almost broke four TVs, Roy. I was that pissed up there. But that's that's what happens. Let's hopefully we'll get another. Offside goal, or, like, or the or the New York Islanders would do something stupid, make a dumb penalty, and in tomorrow night's game, it's got to be the game in the game of the season for this hockey club. If they let the Islanders back in this series, it's going to be senseless up there. You know, we the Lightning played Black Laser goal again on defense and Valavoleski. They probably could then score eight goals and get the New York Islanders. This will be done and waiting for a great opposition, the Dallas Stars. Guys, that's my rank for tonight. Well, uh, well, we'll let we'll let well, Roy comment. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> you just got that uh, sol- soliloquy. Now you can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't. I think I, I sort of think the Islanders are kind of already back in the series um, because uh, what I noticed from New York is that look, they have they have not been the measure of Tampa Bay at all uh, throughout this series at any point really until. Last night, about halfway through the third period, and it's kind of like all of a sudden the Islanders suddenly woke up and started playing with an intensity. I have not – got to be honest, guys. I have not seen a whole lot of ur- a sense of urgency, a lot of intensity uh, out of the Islanders. The Islanders that we saw against Philadelphia, the Islanders that beat Philadelphia, the Islanders that beat the Capitals are not the Islanders that Tampa Bay Lightning have faced. Uh, they have faced a team that's – much slower, not as interested, not as physical, um, not as crisp. Uh, you know, maybe those first couple of rounds took it out of them. Maybe the bubble's getting to them. I don't know. But we finally started to see a little bit of that Islanders team that we saw in the first two rounds of the playoffs here uh, last night in the, late in the third period. And they carried it on over into overtime where it was at least even, if not 
more in favor of of the Islanders, I would say. And then, uh, you know, you get into a situation like that, and one mistake uh, is you have Sean McDonough kind of fumble a puck there at the blue line, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's two-on-one against, and and you lose. So um, I think the Islanders are, are back in the series now. A lot's going to depend on how they look in the first couple periods tomorrow night. Tampa's right. still the better team, uh, and they've played, had the much better series. And I, you know, But if the Islanders can come out with the intensity and the sense of urgency that they showed in the third period and through the overtimes last night, well, then we've got one heck of a game six coming up for sure, and, and it could yep. lead to lead to a game seven. I would just say, you know, for the true hockey fan, uh, enjoy it, because uh, we have not seen a lot of good hockey out of this series. We started to see it last night, in my opinion, and uh, I'm anxious to see if uh, it can carry over into the next game. Well, a couple of things I would agree with. Uh, number one, I was a little bit disappointed that uh, uh, Torch didn't come on following the game last night. Uh, uh, MSNBC won. I, I'm a little disappointed in the fact they don't cover the post-game shows on all the games. They only cover one specific games. And Coop said last night after the game was played that, uh, you know, everybody has to win an overtime game. We won a lot of overtime games. It was our shared time to lose one. And we lost it last night. We have to worry about tomorrow night, not what happened tonight. And uh, I thought he was very frank about that. But in the New York Post today, they had a terrific, terrific comment from Torch. He said, I knew we did not have any chance to win game number one because we flew out of Toronto. And uh, it was we had played three straight series, having to play in, and then the two series. Then going from Toronto up to Vancouver, we didn't get there. Nobody could practice. Nobody had any energy for the first game. He said, I felt we had no chance to win the first game. And I've had no practices since the tournament started because our players were just beat. They were just out of energy. And he said, I think now going into game six and game seven, if if there is one, he said, I think we're more back to the way we were during the season and in the early part of the playoffs, but we weren't anywhere near there in the first five games. That's what he said. Well, that's quite a commentary, uh, Don, because uh, it kind of supports what I just said, and I hadn't read that article, I hadn't read that column, but uh, that's exactly how I've seen it. Yeah, it didn't look like the Islanders had the energy. I didn't know that uh, Trotz would go there in terms of talking about the travel and the effects of that on him, but he's right. You know, um, teams have not had a chance to uh, uh, to, to practice as much. They, uh, I mean, this is, the, this is the way it works. The, the good thing, I guess for all the teams is that they are in one place. They haven't had to travel a lot, so that's helpful. Right. But uh, these are these are tough times, and and you know whether it's Tampa Bay or the Islanders, right now, uh, the 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 Dallas Stars are getting the rest um, that those right. teams aren't getting. They're getting a chance to practice that those teams aren't getting, and as we've seen in this series, that can mean an awful lot to a team uh, getting a, a good head start uh, on winning the series. So because Tampa's certainly uh, t- taking advantage of that opportunity, even despite the fact they've been without some of their key players uh, through this series. So, um, yeah, re- very interesting uh, take there by uh, Barry Trott. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Did you did you hang in all the way last night? or Because you got to get up to go to work. Did you hang in or did you bail out? No, I hung in there all the way. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to – I shouldn't say it out loud, but, you know, work might suffer just a tad, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to catch the lightning game. I'm not going to miss it. So, uh, no, I hung in there, and 
and still managed to get all the work done today that I wanted to get done as well. So, uh, yeah, I hung in there. I, look, it's well, playoff hockey. you got to got to hang in as much as you can. I'm with you. I, I thought it was a terrific guy. I really, I really thought that the, uh, uh, you know, that the Lightning had much better of it, as you said, through the first uh, period and into the second period. They seemed to be uh, a lot more crisp. I thought they were taking control of the game. It just didn't work out that way, as they, they as you said, they sort of backed off after we went through that. But I thought that the play of the game to save it was the stop that uh, uh, that the Islanders goaltender made on that shot in the second overtime through the legs. I can't remember who the player was that the shot went through his legs. The goaltender was completely blind, backed off, and he stopped the shot. You probably know who the player was better than I. Uh, but anyway, that, I thought that was the play of the game to save it for the Islanders. Yeah, I think it was uh, I, I think it was uh, Cicerelli that uh, got Cicerelli. Uh, Cicerelli, I think it was uh, Cicerelli, Anthony Cicerelli who got the shot through. Yeah, and you're right, uh, he he didn't see that, um, but his instincts just kind of took over and uh, he got the right. out and keep it out. Yeah, and and you know what, that's what you need to kind of you know boost your team a little bit, especially in a in an overtime session. You need a big save like that, and uh, you know Tampa got its big saves from Vas- Vasilevsky and. Uh, you know, again, it, it, usually in a situation like that, it comes down to a small mistake. And, um, you know, the Lightning have been – they've been hurt a little bit by, by broken sticks here and there on, on slap shot attempts. Right. And uh, in this case, a, a bit of a fan shot. Uh, those, those things can – boy, it, it's, it's crazy how the Lightning have kind of suffered with that a little bit. But um, that's been their kind of their – Well, the double, the double minor just at the end of that. I mean, how, how can you not score on a double minor – and uh, yeah. you got everything going your way, and, and you don't deserve to win that game if you can't get a if you can't get anything. You, they didn't even get any shots that were worthwhile. No, they didn't. And you know what? Usually, that that's kind of a telltale sign is if you have an opportunity like that, you know, either a two man advantage or a double minor, and you can't capitalize. Uh, a lot of times, you look back at it. Uh, that that'll be the you know it won't necessarily lead to to the result, but the team that kind of misses that opportunity. Ends up on the on, on the on the wrong end of the score. So, um, yeah. The, again, this is uh, this is what happens. Any anything, any little thing can really make a big difference uh, in a hockey game, especially when two teams are as uh, as you know, in essence, evenly matched. I mean, let's say this about the Islanders. Given what Barry Trotz has said about their play and their fatigue level and everything else, in fact, they haven't practiced. Here they are. You know, they were down three games to one. Now it's three games to two. They got a chance to even this thing up, and it's not like they've been blown out in any games. I mean, they've they've lost, but they haven't really been blown out. It's not like they've been losing five one six one here. Uh, they've kept them tight, so uh, for the most part. So uh, uh, give them credit there, and uh, you know, it's just kind of like a a little bit of a of a, of a sleeping bear that uh, you don't want to wake up at this point. And if they woke up, we could be in for something special tomorrow night. So Tampa's really going to want to. I think come out and try to get them out of the game early with with a quick goal or two. Wouldn't be surprised at all if uh, John Cooper throws out that uh, a Kucherov line right away instead of the checking line and tries to get uh, tries to get up on on the Islanders uh, real quick. Well, I'll tell you, Kucherov got beat up last night. I'll tell you that <laughs> they didn't let him. They were focused on him from the day one. But Tommy, what's happened to the power play, Tommy? I mean, you see every game. What's going on? They, they just can't operate effectively with the power game at all. Well, I think right now it's missing Stamkos in that power play. Roy, I have to agree with that. Missing Stamkos and Brandon Point on that power play. 
Kucherov is in a corner shot, and then it, it comes back to Hedman at the point. But, you know, I think the power plays, they miss the Stamkos tremendously. Brandon Point tremendously. Uh, thank God for Sergei, you know, like for the other other defensive partner that the Lightning have. And, and Victor Hedman's done a great job on offense and defense. You can't fault him a lot. But, but, but you got to say that he acts as a Brandon Point. Him and Kucherov are tied for the, for the league playoff points lead. So um, the whole thing. Well, Tommy, you got Hedman's been the player of the whole series. I mean, the five games have been yeah. played. He's been basically the number one star, number two star. He should be. Got eight goals, right. which is put him, putting him in big time company. When you look at the <clears throat> the total record of the National Hockey League of playoff goals, I mean that one he fired in last night was unbelievable. He's he's been tremendous. So you can't blame him. I mean, but I don't know what's going on. Roger, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm going to get away from hockey and get on the NFL since we only have like Uh-oh. another about 12 minutes. And uh, Roy, uh, your opinion, your uh, uh, evaluation of the uh, uh, the Bucks uh, Saints game? I'll tell you what. Uh, if it, it looked an awful lot like what we saw last year every Sunday, didn't it? Um, <laughs> from the quarterback play all the way through uh, everything else. Uh, you know, the defense was, was okay. Um, didn't get any takeaways, which, uh, you know, but they, they kept them in it, but boy, the offense just kept hurting them. Uh, whether it was, and the special teams, you know, you left, you know, you left points on the, on the field, uh, with, uh, with the kicker, you had a horrible special teams follow up that, uh, led to tremendous field position for the saints. Um, you, the quarterback threw the ball away twice, had a pick six. Um, the running game was adequate, not special. Um, you know, it's just amazing how you changed all the bodies around and, and you brought in the greatest quarterback of all time, and yet you still look like the same team from a year ago. I, I was a little surprised at the, the level of play from Tom Brady. And, uh, you know, so they got to clean some things up, no doubt about that. But uh, it was amazing how Buck-like that, uh, that outing looked. Uh, and how James Winston-like Tom Brady looked, which is uh, uh, that's a bit of a slap in the face to the man, I know. But let's face it, uh, that was a, that was a that was a Jameis-like outing for Tom Brady. It's a and, I don't know if you had a chance to see the game, but I have to agree with Roy. I, I mean, you looked at that game in total uh, uh, Sunday, and uh, you saw what? You saw two interceptions, one going for a touchdown. You saw a kicker that missed a field goal. You saw basically everything they've seen over the last two years. And you mean to tell me in four or five years' time you can't get a guy that can kick a field goal? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Go ahead, Roger. Well, I was just going to say, and then uh, Belichick has the last laugh because he wins with uh, Cam Newton at quarterback. So, and he never complimented uh, – uh, the, the uh, uh, you know, um, uh, the quarterback in the past uh, at New England. But, boy, is he kowtowing to Cam. Well, he, I can't you know believe he ran the ball 15 times. I mean, I, I you know, he's going to get himself hurt again. I, I thought that was a – I mean, I, I agree with you about Belichick, you know, complimenting him. But he went through that stuff where he used to be Superman and all that uh, yeah. again. I, I mean, I thought he was getting too old for that. But to run the ball 15 times like he did, he's going to keep doing that. He's not going to be around for more than four or five weeks. No, not you're right. Not for long. Right. He sure did look good on Sunday. I'll say that, guys. I mean, he did look good. He, uh, 
Right. He 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 looked good enough that you you had to wonder how did that man spend 86 days on the sidelines waiting for somebody to give him a call and give him a job because uh, he looked better than uh, I'd say at least half the quarterbacks in the NFL over the course of the first week. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, he he may not last, uh, but but we'll see. But uh, you know, one thing the Patriots usually do a pretty good job of protecting their quarterback. I don't think he needs to run that much, to be honest. And uh, maybe one thing that Belichick will do is probably try to dial that down a little bit and say, "Hey, you know, preserve yourself. We got to. It, it's we're, we're for the long run here. We're going to the playoffs. I mean, once again, the AFC East already looks like the the AFC East. It's a two team race, race at best. And uh, yeah, brutal. And so uh, he'll probably tell him, "Hey, <laughs> preserve yourself. We, we we're going to need you for the long haul here." Well, on the flip side, Roy, in Philadelphia, the uh, fans are just after Carson Wentz for having a great first half and a bomb in the second half. And the uh, the uh, and on top of that, the uh, he he held holds the ball too long. Uh, Peterson's even talked about it now that he keeps on telling him to uh, release it, you know, get rid of it, get rid of it, and he doesn't. And, of course, now the jury's out, you know, what what are they going to do? Because it was only one game, but that was a game that they should have won and could have won mm-hmm. and didn't win. That's right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you're right. That that was a game that they, they were out to a nice lead. It looked like they were in control. I mean, I I'm, I'm, you know, wouldn't be surprised at all if a lot of people after the first quarter might have turned turned away from it and said, okay, well, this, you know, Philadelphia is going to move on here, but – you're right. Uh, very uh, unsteady second half there, and uh, and they end up losing it. So you're right, Carson Wentz. Uh, he's got to start mm-hmm. playing a little bit better than that. Um, you know. So again, I think I think uh, the coaches are right there. They, they, he's got to start. He's got to start getting rid of the ball quicker. He can't take the sacks. Certainly can't. Uh, he's got to be a little bit quicker with his decision making overall. That's what it comes down to. Is his decision making has to be better. He's got to know where he's going with that ball right away. Roger, Absolutely. we talked about that last week. That uh, you know, the Eagles. So the last couple of years have started off very, very slowly, and Wentz has yeah. started off very, very slowly, and they couldn't afford to do that this year. So I'd have to say that not only did he start out slowly, but you saw why Washington picked up a coach that knows how to mm-hmm. win. Exactly. Well, that's right, and they have a great defense, and the Eagles' offensive line was like a sieve. So uh, you know, injuries <laughs> and everything else. You're right, and, and you know what? I, I think going into the season, guys, there was a lot of thought that, much like the AFC East, uh, the NFC East would be a, a two-team race, that it would probably be uh, Dallas and, and Philadelphia. Well, all of a sudden now, you, like you said, Don, Washington's got a football coach, and uh, a darn good mm-hmm. one. And uh, Carolina may already be wondering if they got, if they were you know, a little bit too uh, hasty to get rid of, uh, 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 to get rid of their coach, because in, in uh, obviously in, in Washington, uh, he's woken some people up, and uh, that's about the best I've seen Washington look in a while. So, uh, look, been a big fan of him for a long time. Uh, I think they got to. I think they, they're they're they're, they're going to be a team to be reckoned with. I believe in Washington. And they got to feel badly in Dallas because they did not look very good. And uh, Roger, you, you're a Sunday white football watcher. Uh, uh, I was very, very disappointed in the way they came out in game number one for McCarthy. Oh, I, I was too. And, uh, you know, but it's the first game. And, 
I think the, uh, the other thing is that I found interesting is that uh, McCarthy kept the uh, former uh, offensive coordinator for Jason Garrett in place, and he's calling the, the uh, offensive plays. And wasn't that one of the issues that uh, uh, they had at Green Bay about McCarthy uh, calling plays and not being on the same uh, page? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it exactly. was in uh, in Green Bay. Was there was questions about McCarthy and you know should he be calling the plays? Should he not be calling the plays? It was like they didn't they weren't happy when he was calling them and they weren't happy when he happy when he wasn't. I'm not sure what the right uh, answer is there, but uh, no. Look, I don't I don't mind he kept on, kept the coordinator. I think that uh, that continuity I think is important, um, especially for a new coach with a, a team that you know, let's face it, you, you you've got a quarterback who you're not quite sure if he's a franchise guy. Looks like he could be. Then, then there's days when he looks like he couldn't. Sunday was the day when he looked like he couldn't. But, um, you know, I think the continuity is a smart thing. Um, but you do have to kind of, you know, make sure that you're calling the game you want called. And, and I think that's part of the problem with Mike McCarthy is it seems like you're never quite sure, you know, who's in charge here. Are you really in charge, Mike McCarthy, or, or is someone else running the show? Because it's okay to hand the play calling off to somebody else, but um, you kind of got to – you really got to kind of take control at some point. I just haven't, you know, you didn't seem to take control a lot in Green Bay, and here we are uh, already questioning that uh, in Dallas. So okay. uh, interesting to see where it goes from here with uh, the folks in Dallas. Oh, Aaron Rodgers had a good game, you know, at, at his age and still and looks good. And, of course, Drew Brees, I mean, what can you say? They had two outstanding games. Yeah, well, one thing I found out in that game was that the Dallas Cowboys offensive line was their that was their bread and butter for the last, they built that thing from nowhere, all all rookies, all everything. And that offensive line did not look very good in Sunday night's game. But Roy, we're about out of time. Uh, Mike Schulte's waiting to talk about all the what's happening in the Big Ten, what's happening at the Outbound Bowl. So uh, Roy, once again, thanks very, very much. Uh, we touched on a lot of stuff. We'll get a lot more next week. Will indeed. Thank Thanks for having me, guys. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Go guys. Bolts. Take care. All right, Mike Schulte, you're, you came in at the right time because the Big Ten made their decision this afternoon. Uh, one was positive for the Big Ten. At least uh, they're going to play all their conference games, and they'll, of course, uh, carry on to the postseason as well. But give us your uptake on, first of all, what happened to the Big Ten, and then We'll talk about your Outback Bowl, and uh, you're you're going to be back in business, working to get started again. Well, uh, I planned that really well, didn't I, for the Big Ten to make that announcement <laughs> the day I came on? Yes, you did, Mike. <laughs> you, you led those, Boy, those yeah, uh, presidents, Mike. You led them to the yeah. uh, right, right uh, decision. Well, it, 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 yeah, down something might help, but, but I, I picked it to the end, so <laughs> I closed the deal. <laughs> right, right. No, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it is great to see that the Big Ten is going to be playing uh, their games. Uh, I'm glad they were able to uh, come up with a situation they were comfortable with. And, and uh, it, you know, obviously uh, it'll be uh, a lot nicer in, in a couple weeks. I mean, obviously there's – you know, the games have been playing already, which is great to see. I mean, it's been fun watching those games. And then, um, you know, in a couple of weeks, the SEC teams will be starting. And then uh, next month, the it looks like the Big Ten will start as well. So it'll be 
be great to have uh, you know, mo- almost all the, the conferences, uh, you know, back playing uh, college football. It's, uh, it's what we, you know, we, we always all look forward to this time of year, and it's uh, great that uh, it's, you know, even with everything that's happened in the last seven, eight months, that we're going to be in a position to hopefully see these guys go out and play. Well, that's great news, Mike. Well, it is, Mike. It is great news, and uh, it, it's also encouraging that um, the, uh, some of the other uh, hey, conferences huh? are playing and and uh, yeah. and they're holding up uh, pretty well, uh, you know. And and they have uh, minimum attendance. And the other thing that I find very interesting is that the uh, uh, the, the uh, NCAA coverage and also the NFL. The broadcasters are on site, uh, not the radio, the local radio broadcasters, but the TV. Whereas with baseball, the uh, away teams are broadcasting from their own stadiums, and they're not on the road with the, uh, you know, uh, with the uh, uh, with the team. With the team. So yeah. I think this this yeah. is good for the uh, NCAA football. Yeah, it's going to. I'm not sure how. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know exactly. I haven't really heard, what, you know, how they're doing it. I, I, I know you'd mentioned, but it seems like they are. And Mike, how are you doing tonight? Being on campus and being at the game itself, I'm not really sure why they're doing the remote aspect, only because, um, you know, it's not like you're with a whole lot of other people there, at least from the announcer's stand. Um, okay. Tommy? Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike, that's great news about the football. What happens if the fans, the fans been calling your office say, how can we purchase tickets to be involved in the Outback Ball? Say what, and they want to be involved in it. They make well, a donation we're, we're to not, the ball yeah, itself. Not, <clears throat> yeah, sorry, Tom. Um, yeah, we, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, not selling tickets. Uh, Ticketmaster yet for the game this year. We're still, you know, we're still waiting to see what's going to transpire for postseason. Uh, the conferences haven't really determined what they're going to do from a postseason perspective. So, so we're, uh, you know, we're um, uh, still on hold from that perspective, and you know, we're, uh, you know, we'll have to see what what happens as far as what the conferences are wanting to do in that regard, right. and then and then we'll move forward. Mike Schulte, our I'm guest, sorry. of course, he's been uh, working with the Outback Bowl now for the longest period of time. He keeps telling me how many years, and oh. I keep forgetting, but it's been a long time. But one question I uh, didn't ask you the last time you were on, had the Big Ten not elected to uh, to go back and play starting this uh, in a couple of weeks, how would you have gone about picking your team, the second half uh, of your uh, team for the Outback Bowl? Did they have any idea what was going to happen there? Well, like I said, we you know we don't know what's going to happen you know with, with the postseason yet. You know, none of the conferences have, have indicated what they're going to do um, in regards to uh, the bowl games and the postseason situation. Um, I, I think the conferences, you know, were wanting to get their seasons up and running first. Uh, first and foremost, that's their first uh, um, job and their first priority. And then from there, you know, now that you know they're starting down that road and they're starting to get some of the games going, you know, and we'll, we'll you know we'll have conversations with 
along with all the bowl games and the, the conferences, uh, you know, with uh, regard to what the postseason was going to look like, because it's you know, obviously you know going to be a bit different from what what uh, it, it has been in the past and what, what it would typically be. So, um, you know, we we haven't really um, uh, gotten into those discussions yet, and you know, we'll see. The uh, uh, probably in the next few weeks here we'll we'll. Uh, uh, you know, determine what the conferences are willing to do with the day to day season. Roger? Mm-hmm. The, uh, what do you think uh, the, the uh, Big Ten situation will be like, uh, Mike? Uh, do you think there'll be a number of op outs? Uh, and, and I wonder whether waiting till October or the end of October to play uh, is maybe a, a going out too far. I don't know why they couldn't start now because they've still been in training all this time. Well, not all the schools have. Uh, some of the schools have, have paused training. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure of this, but I believe they were limited as to what type of training they could do, um, especially when they when they had made a decision at the time to, to, you know, to not play in the fall. So uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that a lot, a lot of it has to do probably with the combination of um, needing a certain amount of time for the teams to get uh, in a position to be able to play, and then the other being uh, that they needed to they need some time to get the, uh, the protocols set in place that they determine they're going to use from the case testing apparatus and so forth and, and so forth. So I, you know, I'm, not, it, it, this involved in that. I'm just guessing that I would assume that, uh, that there's, um, you know, they, they just need some time to, you know, to, you can't really restart these kind of things in the snap of the fingers. I mean, and, and even all along, the, you know, the colleges had said, even going back to springtime, you know, that they were going to need a, a, a good run in six to eight weeks uh, before they, they picked off the first game to get these guys back in position. It's not a matter of them just being able to go out and play. It's a matter of them to be physically uh, ready to go out and play at the high level and the high speed that these games are played at. And uh, you can't just go from the stop, the stop point to, to that very quickly. So I'm assuming that, uh, you know, they took all that into consideration and, and they, you know, they felt like that was the, the soonest that they were really going to be able to do it. And it's, it's going to enable them evidently to, to play, you know, eight or nine games, um, which is uh, which is fantastic. You know, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be great to, that they're going to be be out there playing. You know, because a lot of people felt like they they weren't going to be playing this year at all. Mike, I think a great deal of pressure was put on the Big Ten by their number one team, Ohio State. Their coach, uh, their staff, their uh, Everything connected with Ohio State was very, very disappointed that they had said they were going to postpone. And I think they put a lot of pressure on before that meeting uh, last week, end of last week, uh, to decide whether they were going to come back and do it. Well, I don't know. You know, there's obviously a lot of disappointed coaches, players, fans, you know, across the board, um, you know, with the early decision. And, and uh you know, these are really tough times. I mean, these are tough, this is a tough situation. Uh, we're all dealing with it every single day, right? Um, you know, we're, we're, de- we're dealing with something that's unprecedented, and not only that, but it's a fluid situation in regards to the virus and the protocols and, 
the health risks and, and everything that's, that's happening with it. So, you know, it's you know, you know, it, it's it's difficult time you know for everybody in a lot of different ways, and you know they're they're trying to do the best they they can. You know, I, I think that they they uh, you know the conference you know uh, read stories about how they. Well, I sort of know that some of the communication channels were probably not as good as they needed to be initially when they came out with the initial determination um, uh, as to, you know, why they were making the decisions they were making and, and so forth. And, and uh, so, you know, that, that always, uh, you know, causes a little bit of angst and confusion when, when you know, the communication channels aren't where they should be. Um, you know, and, and you know, because you, you know, you got a lot of different layers. You got the presidents and the athletic directors and the coaches and the players. And I think a lot of the communication um, that happened maybe wasn't as good as it should have been. So all those different constituents to try and uh, determine, you know, for everybody to be on board, I guess, with whatever decision they're going to make. So, so you know, it's you know, at this point, you know, it's obviously you know, it's all behind them. And, and, uh, you know, they've got a plan in place now, and uh, the key will be, you know, hopefully they'll be able to move forward with the plan that they put out there and, uh, and be able to play, and the kids will be able to play, and, and the fans will be able to enjoy their, their teams, and, and everybody will be happy. Tommy? Hmm. That sounds very good, be happy. <laughs> don't worry. They say, Mike, don't worry, be happy. I'm like, all the years that you know, yeah. the Outback Bowl has done for the, the Tampa Bay market is just remarkable. I can say thank you for what you've done. The Outback Bowl, you guys worked so hard during the off-season and season. What you've done for the Tampa Bay area, Mike, you know me for 20-some years. I can't thank you guys enough, you and Jerry, you, you, and, you and Jim in the it's office. A, right? yeah. You guys do a great job. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And the, the program has a great history. It's been able to do a lot of great things uh, from promoting the, the community to, um, you know, paying over $155 million to universities over our history and, and you know, of course, we have a terrible giving initiative, which we've uh, started a few years ago where we've already uh, allocated uh, over $2 million to charity, wow. including this, this year. Roger. Roger. We've actually given away. We've given $500,000 out to charities this year alone um, during the, the pandemic. Um, and they really, you know, they, they always need it, but this year more than ever, they, they need it even more because so many of them are, are servicing people that uh, that have been affected by this pandemic. So uh, we're, we're just very proud that we've been able to, to do that and continue to the community the way we have, and we'll continue to do so. Will the TV will the TV revenue cover uh, the ex- expenses for the teams? You know, your necessary expenses. Uh, just the TV revenue. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you commit so much to each team, and uh, if you don't have a, a big fandom. Uh, will the TV revenue or uh, advertising revenue uh, cover it? Well, that, that's just one piece of the puzzle. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of different um, uh, uh, pieces to the puzzle in regards to the revenue that we, we generate in order to um, to pay our bills and to 
universities and, and so forth. So that that's one of the things, you know, they're obviously all the bowl games are gonna have to, to, to work on this year with regard to uh, any postseason play and, and payouts to universities and that kind of thing. Those obligations, you know, I, I think everybody's gonna gonna work together to be good partners and understanding that this is just a unique uh, year and, and things aren't gonna look quite quite the same as they typically have in the past. Mike Schulte, our special guest, and of course he's been with the Outback Bowl for all these years, and we're talking about yes, football yes. naturally. But I think, fellas, before we wind up, uh, uh, we got to congratulate Mike a little bit because he and Frank, our executive producer, were the only two local Tampa Bay people to be selected. And there were only five in total, but two are Mike and Frank uh, that will be able to put the first bid on Jeter's house. Now, uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know exactly uh, whether they're going to split or whether they're going to, you know, just decide to, to uh, each one buy the house individually. I, I haven't heard that yet. So Mike, are you going to buy the house or it's Frank? Well, well I'll, I'll be happy to put a bid on it, but I, I, I'm not <laughs> real confident that they accept it. <laughs> I, I'm not, I thought not real you were handling that a cash, Don. I, well, I thought I thought they were going to take the money that he makes on the Notre Dame South Florida game on Saturday, and uh, put that toward the house. Uh, that was that was my feeling. Frank, that what are you going to do? Well, uh, Don, I got to tell you that the taxes on that house are more than double what I make a year. So uh, I'm not really sure <laughs> wow. I'll be in, the, in that that uh, thing. Like it only has 16 bathrooms. I don't want you to run short. Yeah. No. Well, <laughs> the, the master bedroom starts hey, how about, I, in one zip code, and the bathroom for the master bathroom <laughs> is in another zip code. So uh, that's another problem that they have to deal with. Yeah, Mike, uh, hey, hey, you've done, it, a, done a tremendous it. job of, of building up the, the Tampa Bay area to the colleges that, uh, that you've been able to uh, assist. And one of the things is all the activities you have for the players and the fans to meet the players during the week. Given the, the current restrictions, uh, will you still be able to do that? Well, like I said, we're not really sure. Uh, we, we're just, you know, we're going to wait and see how everything unfolds. And then at that point, we'll determine you know, what, what things make sense. You know, you know again, a large part of that's going to be by what the teams are wanting to do um, uh, with regard to postseason, um, what that's going to look like. So, you know, unfortunately, we just have to wait and be, be a little bit more patient until all these things are resolved, and then, then we'll be able to move forward and figure out, you know, where the SAE are with everything. But, um, yeah, going back to the, uh, the Cheetah House, I, I, I just got to – it was funny you mentioned that they have 16 bathrooms. Um, uh, you know, I, I bet that was a real mess when they were during the, the uh, when the pandemic started and there was security and toilet paper. Well, only thing I know was they made a comparison in the paper between Raymond James Stadium and his house, and his house has more bathrooms than Raymond James. <laughs> well, I can, I can, I can imagine that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'll, I'll put a bit in on it, but I don't think I'll accept it. I, don't, I think it might be a little bit too late. 
Well, give, give, us a read now. give us a read now on Notre Dame University of South Florida. South Florida got off to a tough start last week, and now they've got to play Notre Dame. I mean, they're really calling. They're really reaching now. Well, what a what a great opportunity for uh, USF, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, talk about a a game that uh, you know, if you could pitch a game, you know, just out of a hat to play, you know, um, you know, in a situation like this where we got to throw in a game, uh, what a great opportunity for them to showcase themselves by playing Notre Dame and uh, being on, on national TV and and so forth. You know, I I don't really know what to tell you as far as the outcome. Uh, you know, being the USF dad, of course, I hope that they do well. But they, um, you know, they they looked you know pretty good the other day. Obviously, they played you know, a different level of team, but um, but they did what they were supposed to do against that team, and what people expected them to do, which is always good. And and uh, Notre Dame, you know, I, I don't know uh, where they are in, in regards to their team this year compared to their last year. So we'll, you know, I think we'll get a little bit of a taste from. I think both the teams is the way they really stand, but uh, what a great opportunity for them to, and, and those kids to be able to, uh, to play uh iconic team like Notre Dame and um, uh, up there at their place, of course, and, and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, I find it interesting, uh, you know, to, to watch the Notre Dame game you know, as a member of the ACC, of course, they moved uh, other sports, including basketball, several years ago. But uh, the one thing they have, they still have their own TV contract, Mike. They didn't give that up. Yeah. No, and, and you know, the, the move this year is not a call to me. It's really just, you know, for this year. Um, and, uh, you know, and they've been a, they're affiliated with the ACC in a lot of different ways. Uh, they've always been they've, they've always been affiliated with them with regard to um, uh, goal selection process um, uh, from a football standpoint, and then you know from other sports, of course, there is somewhat more of a regular number in regards to other other sports and so forth. So, so they you know they've had this you know relationship with ACC for many years, and and obviously it made a lot of sense this year with with what was happening initially. For them right. to uh, have to fill out their, their schedule, and also for the for the ACC teams to, that needed more teams, non-conference teams, or typically non-conference teams to play, and so it just made a lot of sense to for them to sort of join together and, and work together uh, this year. But you know, next year they'll go back to their their, um, their normal uh, their relationship, and, and uh, I think it's but I think it's going to be good because you know for the ACC really because. And you know, now you're going to have you know so many more teams in the ACC being able to play them this year, and, and I think the fans will be really excited about that. Well, I agree with you in terms of it's great an opportunity for University of South Florida to get some national recognition. Uh, last mm-hmm. time they got that was when they played UFC in that you know championship game a couple of years ago. So this is very good for them. Uh, at the same time, uh, watching the Notre Dame Navy game. Uh, Notre Dame looks like they've got a little work to do too. Now they haven't had as much uh, opportunity, I guess, to practice as much as any of the other teams have. Uh, but uh, they need they need a little haggard, or they were a little haggard uh, against uh, Notre against Navy. So I would assume they're going to be happy to have this game on the schedule. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I think it'll be I think it'll be a good test for both teams, and 
and sort of helps define a little bit better as to where each team is right now in the season. Uh, but for both USF to play a tournament like that, but also, like you said, Notre Dame, you know, when you're looking at as, as normal, you know, last, the last game. And, and uh, so, you know, I think after this game, this will be a, a, a this could this be interesting to see which way this game goes, but I think it'll be a good game for both teams to be able to, to, to really evaluate exactly where they are on the, on the, the scale of where they want to be. Tommy? Oh, it's, it's interesting how how things develop when the you know, especially with people then it's just epidemic right now. People try to come back people try to go back at a small stage, small stage in their life. And you see the college football start off in time. I don't know who it was, but see the college football start the time of Labor Day week and it tells you how how much sports you know, the bowl games and everything else under the sun means so much to the American public. That's the only time they can come off, you know, three hours of the day of your of what you're of what you're doing back you know, get out of reality. So I gotta give this credit so much so much uh, so much confidence in sports, especially with the Outback Bowl here in Tampa Bay, what they have done for the Tampa Bay area has been it's been remarkable. Yeah, well, you know what, Tommy, I mean, it, it's a great point. I mean sports is a sports is a part of I think humanity, um, and it has been for, for hundreds of years. Uh it's certainly a major part of, of the um, the lives of Americans, um, and in a lot of different ways, and and uh, I, I think you know with this year especially, you know, uh, people being so isolated, uh, you know, it's not human nature right. to be isolated, uh, especially especially in times of, of turmoil, or trouble, or, or, or stress. Uh, that's typically when we gravitate more towards others, and so I, I remember reading an article early on. Uh, when the pandemic started, you know that it, that it was it was absolutely the opposite thing. Uh, it was, it was an absolutely the opposite thing of what our natural instincts are in times of, of trouble. Um, is enough to um, you know to, to stay apart as opposed to coming together. And I think you know, I think what sports has always done is it's a, it's a commonality that, that brings people together. Uh, from different backgrounds, different economic levels, to different races, you know, whatever it may be, um, you know, to, to come together and after the, you know, your favorite team and, and so forth and enjoy the excitement and, and the escape, of the, as you mentioned. And, and so I think, you know, even more than ever, there's so many things going on right now uh, that can get people uh, down and get uh, provide um, a lot of angst and 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 um, and, 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 and settledness. I, I think it's very important uh, for sports to be out there. At least, even if just from the standpoint of being on TV, for people to be able to watch and enjoy and and to, to associate with other people and, and sort of bring people together uh, through that means. And I think it's. Uh, you know, it, 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 you can't really, um, you can't really explain. I think to put a, a, a mark on, you know, how much that means, but it's all, it means an awful lot. And I think uh, it's great that we're able to start reengaging, uh, at least from the standpoint of sports in, in in this country. Roger. Yeah, I could understand that, uh, Mike, and the. Uh, 
Yeah, I, you know, just like the other uh, fellows, and they've been there times, I congratulate uh, you with uh, the committee for just running an outstanding organization. And it, it, just uh, in recent years, when we've talked about this uh, leading up to the game, I mean, we never had anything like this before. Right. It's got to mm-hmm. be a tremendous challenge for all of you on the uh, staff and the committee. Well, you know, all, all sports teams, leagues, uh, and certainly sporting events like ours, I mean, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's, you know, uh, because it's, you know, you, you really have to start, you know, from square one a little bit and, and try and determine, you know, how, how can you do things safely? Um, you know, are we going to be able to do all the things we want to do? Are the teams going to want to play? Are they, are they, how will that look? You know, what's the stadium situation going to be? I mean, you know, and, and especially when you have a moving target because the, um, you know, the, the health situation, the, the virus, social implications, and so forth, have been uh, ever changing uh, since it began. Uh, sometimes better than others, and then then worse you know, another time. And then, and then you have different, and then it be, and it's been different in different uh, geographic regions of the country, and at different times, and so. You know, it's it's very difficult because it's not uniform, it's not trending in a particular direction at any particular time. Uh, the same everywhere, and so you have to be cognizant of the fact that it's um, it's a very fluid situation, and you have to uh, adjust as best you can. So that's what we're all doing, and that's what all the sports leagues are doing. You've got some playing in bubbles, and some not, and, and some playing with fans in the stands, and some not, and some playing with announcers in the base and some not, and and you, you, it's just a matter of finding what works for each sport and what you, for each event and moving forward as best you can uh, within the situation and, and doing all you can to, to make it as good as you can. And it's also going to affect, uh, in other words, when you talked about uh, the Big Ten only playing Big Ten games uh, beginning, what, in two weeks, uh, at the same time, it eliminates uh, the Notre Dame contracts with the Big Ten. They always played Michigan State. Uh, they always played USC. They always uh, maybe played Stanford. A lot of those games are all out the window. They're only going to play within themselves in the conference, correct? Yeah, and that's, and that's why it's important for Notre Dame to be able to have an ACC schedule if you're to be able to fill out their schedule and, and, and so forth. And, yeah, that they the, the conferences are, my understanding is that the SEC is only playing conference games. Big Ten is only playing conference games. The ACC is playing, I believe, 10 conference games and one non-conference game. Um, and so you're going to have, um, you know, for, so, you know, so yeah, you're not going to have a, a crossover game that you typically have seen in the past. But, you know, it, it, any games are better than no games, right? Well, Mike, we got you on a good week because the Big Ten made their decision today, and you're in the process of continuing to make decisions with the Outback Bowl, and uh, we we obviously going to have you on every now and then doors from now and uh, for the next few weeks. And always appreciate your time, your energy, and your and your information. So thank you very very much. Look forward to the next visit. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Thanks, Mike. Really and, appreciate uh, it. Look forward to talking with you again. Uh, All right, Tom Levine, uh, one of our outstanding broadcasters from the Philadelphia Metropolitan Market, both radio and television, our next guest. And Tom Levine, uh, who was uh, 
with the Flyers all year in the press box uh, on the mic, doing a lot of different things with the Flyers and uh, when they were pushed out the door. But right now, I, I know you're still following the Islanders and what's happening with the Tampa Bay team. Give us a little observation there, Tommy. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost a repeat of what the, uh, uh, the, the Islanders Flyers series, uh, you know, it, uh, if you counted out the uh, Islanders, uh, they won last night in double overtime. And, you know, the Flyers were the kings of overtimes in the playoffs. However, they, they were the worst. <laughs> they were the worst at overtimes in the regular season. Uh, they played a half a dozen regular season games and lost, I mean, a half a dozen overtime games in the regular season and lost every one of them. And yet, when the Flyers played overtime in the postseason, they won every one of them. So I, uh, you know, it, it's um, I looked at it this way, same way with the Flyers, although it didn't turn out that way. I said, if this goes to a game seven after a team has a three games to one lead, uh, all bets are off. And uh, I think uh, things could have gone differently for the Flyers in game seven. Uh, but I, um, you know, I, I think it's going that way with, uh, with the Islanders and Tampa Bay. Well, Tom, I was just going to say good news from Citizens Bank Park tonight. Jacob DeGrab's out of the game, and the Phillies are up 4 nothing. An interesting uh, – well, that's very rare for that to happen, uh, for DeGrom to be yanked that early. I don't think he was – you know, I don't know what it was. His fastball seemed pretty good, but, uh, uh, you know, you live and die by his it. Defense, guess, uh, his defense was awful, Tommy. That's what happened. Instead of getting only one run in the first day, the Phillies got three. They're absolutely ridiculous defense. Yeah, but did he get well, hurt, Don? Pardon me? Uh, we took. Did Grom get took. hurt, and that's why he was pulled? I, I, I don't know. So. I, don't, I don't know. I don't have any sound on it. I just have the picture. Yeah, I, I think too. we talked about this uh, the last – Last time I was on with you guys, and that was about uh, you know fundamental baseball. I mean, it's just yeah. absent anymore. I mean, it just doesn't. It's not there. Um, speaking of the Phillies, uh, Don, uh, they made an interesting move today. They signed a first baseman and a catcher. And and what two players are injured for the Phillies right now? A first baseman and a catcher. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know how much you're going to read into that, but these are. Uh, these are quality uh, quality veterans that they signed. Uh, LaCroix, I mean, he was an all-star catcher not too long ago. And Bird, there's uh, just too many guys at that position for the Yankees or else, uh, you know, he'd have had a, a, a better uh, position with the uh, New York Yankees. But that's interesting. For them to sign a first baseman and a catcher, when the two players well, uh, that are today in the New York Post, Tommy, a terrific story yeah. in there. Of course, I saw uh, coming back yeah. coming back from Philadelphia, uh, you know, uh, managing uh, uh, the Phillies to get some Mets tonight. Uh, New York writers had a great chance to to talk to to uh, Joe Girardi, and if you read the piece too, uh, they're saying that the new owner was two point six billion dollars or five point billion. The only player he should look at right off the bat is the catcher from the Philadelphia Phillies, paying whatever he needs to get. So, mm, a very good right. story about whether they're going to do it or not. Well, you know, for that matter, any team in baseball should look at, should look at JT Real Muto. Uh, I know that's the big news. It's New York. They got a new owner. He's 
right. phones, a money bags guy, and uh, everything. But uh, you know, uh, if I'm a major league team, and uh, and you know, I'm, I'm going to go after JT Realmuto, whoever you are. Mm. But um, you know, it's uh, it's time for the owner of the Phillies to back up his statement that if he's going to spend money stupid, he might want to spend it smart right now. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I can't remember. I can't, you know, go back to Piazza days, I guess, but I can't remember when when a catcher position was so uh, uh, highlighted and so, it's always, to me, it's always been important, a position, but, um, I mean, this is really uh, an unusual unusual situation, if only because J.T. Realmuto is, is an unusual player. You know, I said, well, he's a best well, catcher Paul, in baseball. Paul well, down to San Francisco, they're the two big catchers, right? They're the ones who really broke the bank, uh, you know, a few years ago. And hey, Pujols, they didn't get much of anything out of Pujols out in, L- in California. Pujols, uh, uh, <laughs> as a catch, when, when did Pujols catch a game? I don't remember that. <laughs> Long time ago. <laughs> but you know, it's a it, it's a it's a situation where Riavolto to me is not only the best catcher in baseball; he's one of the top five players in baseball. I agree. You know, like I said, you don't you, you you have to go back to guys like Piazza to figure out who what catcher in baseball was not only one of the best catchers in baseball, was best player in baseball, and uh, and to to double down on that, when's the last time you knew a catcher with speed? You know, a guy could he steals. He he has stolen bases. No catcher has stolen bases. <laughs> if a catcher has one stolen base a year. It's a big deal. It's Merkel. So, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, Even in uh, his one in a career. Exactly. So this yeah. guy's a double Someone threat. That, in a the, in the article, Tommy, that we're talking about, Joe Girardi said he's the smartest player on the team, the best prepared player on the team, and he said he wouldn't even be worried about uh, two or three or five years down the road because he said he could play any position he wants to play. He's that athletic. So, uh, I mean, right. Girardi, Girardi gave him a lot of information to work with. I'll tell you that. Well, he's uh, he's probably he's very he's probably he's very durable. I mean, uh, if Absolutely. well, for instance, if he hadn't if he hadn't chosen baseball, uh, he would probably be a starting quarterback for Oklahoma State, and uh, might have made it to the NFL. Uh, they had him down there as a starting quarterback for Oklahoma State, which is a which is a major football program down there. Uh, but you know, he's 29 and I, you know, if there's besides pitchers, I guess if there's any position where you're uh, liable for injury, it's, it's, it's catcher. So many things could go wrong as a catcher. You know, to me, I, I'm just, uh, you know, to me, that's the, uh, you know, next to pitching, that's the important uh, position on a baseball team. Uh, he's in, he's the, he's the quarterback for the game. Um, and he's just, uh, you know, he goes to, you know, he gets a, he knocks in a run or something like that. It comes in and scores immediately. He goes to the bench, puts on the equipment, and gets out there and catches again. I, I just, uh, I, I don't know how much the Phillies are willing to spend on him, and how much of uh, stupid money is coming from the front office. But um, it's going to be interesting to see. But you know, Don, don't go too much about that New York uh, story. You know, New York has a tendency to blow up a lot of stories, and uh, you know, it fits everything. <laughs> for the new owner coming in. But don't forget, the new owner has to be approved first. And that approval, that approval by the rest of the owners may not come until after free agency is, you know, well and gone. Uh, Somebody may already delve into 
like I said, what other what other team in baseball would not want Rio Muto? Uh, you know, I'm not too sure the uh, I'm not too sure the Yankees are very happy with Sanchez. I mean, he's he's got his defensive liabilities are unbelievable, and now he's starting to starting to tail off with his hitting. So uh, his offensive I, is, Yankees, is unbelievable too. He's a he's not playing any offense either. Well, well yeah, the Yankees I mean. are I mean, uh, the Yankees are in that group, Tom. But I'll tell you what, oh, what the other thing the, Phil, the Phillies have to look at is they gave up Sixto Sanchez, and you saw how great he looked the other day. I never would have made that deal myself and given Sanchez up. He was too good of a prospect. And, and here what we wow. can have 10 years down the line, we can have a, a Cy Young Award winner, Hall of Fame, a future Hall of Famer, if he, if he doesn't get hurt. And and then you know and then they would have uh, if they lose Riamuto into free agency what did they get they got two years they didn't win anything it was it was a, a lost deal. Well, I disagree. Uh, I I, I would have I made them I would have made that move in a on a heartbeat. As a matter of fact, uh, I was a Riamuto fan. You know when he first came up. Oh, I am the, too. Uh, Don't get me wrong, Tom. But, uh, I am right. too. You have to. You're right, but you're also right about you have to follow up on it. If you made that much of a commitment, you got to keep them. And right. uh, I, uh, and don't forget, uh, you know, a catcher plays every day. You know, your pitcher is in there once every four days, or you know. And I know, you know, if you get a guy like Jacob Degrom or or, or Kirk and Clayshaw, that you know, they're MVP, uh, you know, Cy Young winners every other year or something, that's different. But you. Uh, you know, school's still out on Sixto, but school was never out on Riamuto. He's a proven, guaranteed, absolute top five baseball player. And uh, when I heard that uh, they were going to sign him, best move the Phillies made ever since they acquired Steve Carlton. I mean, that's a, I mean, I really, I mean, he, I remember talking to, uh, well, you know, I'm down there in Florida, Rick Walsh, who was the play-by-play guy for the uh, Marlins and was uh, unceremoniously let go. I don't know why. He was a fine play-by-play guy for the Marlins. And I remember talking to him a couple of years ago when, when he came into Philadelphia, and I said, uh, you know, I, you, are the Marlins totally committed to this guy? Are they going to have a fire sale like they did before? I mean, they got, they got rid of their center fielder. And uh, I, I just don't understand some of the moves Florida makes that really, really, you know, shocked the hell out of me. You know, they give away an all-star outfielder. They give away an all-star catcher. But anyway, when he was, a, when, he, when he was, you know, in his early stages of, uh, of his career with the, uh, with the Marlins, I guess they were the Florida Marlins back then, uh, I, I just admired the way he played. I mean, this guy's and, – and to me, the catcher, a catcher is, you know, next to your starting pitching staff, you know, you build your team, I believe, on a catcher. And uh, if you get a guy that, uh, you know, that I think uh, is, is of the same quality as Mark Piazza, uh, who's a Hall of Famer, you, you have a chance to pick up a guy like that, grab him. But at the same time, and you made a, you made a good point there, that they have to – once you commit to this guy, you've got to commit to him. You know, you commit him. to a card hand, yeah, you've got to double down. You know what I mean? And right. uh, that's uh, whatever it is, they, whatever it is they've got to keep telling- Tommy, you said that, and I agree with you. But when you've already laid out three hundred and thirty million dollars for one player, now you know when you're talking about making this move with a catcher. Let's face it; he's going to get somewhere between one hundred and eighty and two hundred twenty million dollars at a time. That means you've got over five hundred million dollars in two players. I mean, 
boy, 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 you're talking about being stupid money. How do you how do you make a team? How do you make twenty three other players when you got that kind of money in two players? Well, and Harper's not uh, producing like he did. I don't. You know, I don't. You know, I don't worry about that. He's, uh, <laughs> that, that uh, I, I, you know, he's, he's in not, it's not moment, our money, but, Tom. Not our money. Well, well, it's not your money, and it's your. Uh, you, you know, you worry. You worry about how you fit the pieces in. After you get one of the best hitters in the game, sign him to uh, the big contract, and uh, and another thing, you you. <laughs> well, you know what? Don't forget what you ha- what you did in these two moves is. You've taken two players that were your competitors and your your opponents in the same division. I mean, look at right. look what mm-hmm. losing uh, Bryce Harper did to Washington. Uh, you know, flood is another story. I mean, they give up. They give up their all star center fielder. I mean, who's to me was one of the best players in baseball too. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> what do you think? But you know, you have weakened your opponent and. Uh, you know, you, you in answer to your question, Don, you just fill in the pieces later on. It looks like they are, they're able to supplement the other pieces with um, with young players who they have, uh, for instance, their third baseman. Uh, you know, they got him for three years before they start to think about how they're going to sign him to a long-term contract. And, by the way, I played golf with Mickey Morandini yesterday in a, oh, in a, charity, in, in a charity tournament. And I asked first thing I asked Mickey when I saw him yesterday morning, I said, is, uh, is Alec Bohm the real deal? He said, oh, yeah, without a doubt he's the real deal. He's just five years ahead of him, of his age in playing the way he hits and his baseball smarts. And uh, so you got him at third, and to me, third base. Look down the history. A lot of successful teams have had a very heavy-hitting third baseman. And, uh, you know, you got Scott Kingery, who I, I have to believe hasn't been the same since he came down with the COVID virus. I, I still believe he's been weak yeah. He's been weakened by that. And, uh, yep. you know, and, you know, one guy they got to hang on to is, is Quinn. I mean, uh, to me, another, another key piece for a successful baseball team is a guy who can steal bases. And, you know, I remember saying <laughs> at the baseball, at the uh, sports writers banquet a couple of years ago, uh, when I was introducing Gary Maddox, uh, I said to then the manager of the Phillies, I said, you know, one thing people, well, I said it to everybody when I introduced Gary Maddox. I said, of all the things Gary Maddox did covering, you know, the ground that he did in center field, Gary Maddox averaged 20 stolen bases a year. And, uh, and I said, and, 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 and the manager of the Phillies, who's now the manager of the St. Louis Giants, was sitting right next to the podium. And I looked down at him and I said, that's something you might work on, coach. You know? And, and one thing the Phillies are doing this year, uh, they're starting to steal bases uh, and they're starting to be aggressive on the bases and running. And when you've got a guy like Quinn in that lineup who can just, uh, he can steal a game for you. Uh, getting back to what you were saying, Don, you're, they have the pieces together that uh, once they get these two big names and sign them, uh, I think they're, uh, you know, <laughs> they're, uh, well, let me put it this way. They're three or four pitchers away from <laughs> from having a good pitching staff. That's the main well, thing. I, I, I can't I can't disagree with you in that time, but I do think this. I, I think that when you put that kind of money out, uh, to me, it, it, it all starts at sixty feet six sixty feet six inches from home plate. 
if you don't have any pitching and if you don't have any ball bullpen, you're not going to win very many games. And I don't care whether you have Harper or whether you – I don't care who you have out there. Well, Don, San, Diego's it's, it's, proved, San Diego's proven that now four times. They put all kinds of money into superstar players, and they don't win anything. Well, they're winning now. Hey, Tom, <laughs> I, want, uh, let me, I wanted to get back to what you had originally said about the, uh, the players the Phillies just signed, first baseman and a catcher. You know, they had that kid that never played above A, got his first major league hit, um, the um, uh, the catcher the other on Saturday, I guess it was. But uh, right, I right. Wanted, wanted the uh, what happened is Hoskins looks like he's gone for the year. Uh, they talked about this tonight, and uh, because right. that I, Don and I talked about this the other day uh, on the phone when when Hoskins got got his wrist bent. Most of the time, that's a broken wrist. So right. uh, it's definitely uh, a, a problem where it's going to take a long time uh, and maybe the off season for it to heal. That's the way they're looking at it. So this way, now they've got Vaughn now over at first. He can go back to third and then the, whoever the first baseman. I haven't seen the transaction. I'll have to take a look. But, uh, you know, they, uh, they had um, – uh, a couple of guys playing, and they could, they've they had in the past, they had Rhea Muto playing some first base, you know, like uh, instead of catching. Uh, right. So, you know, hopefully he'll be back in the next day, a day or so. No, I want, I want to go along with what you said originally. You know, you get, you get, a, you get a starting first baseman from the Yankees. And if, and if in fact, as you suggested, uh, Hoskins may be out for quite some time. You get Bird and you put he's a, he was a starter for the Yankees. You put him on first, get your rookie third baseman back to third base and, and get you know, get set that way. Uh and I you know, and I'll tell you what, uh, I was surprised that Bird was available because uh, you know, there's I guess there's there's a crowd at the Yankee on the Yankee roster right now. They got too many guys who play similar positions. Uh but uh you know, you're right. I, I totally agree with you, Roger. I think uh as soon as you if Bird gets on this team, immediately, immediately start him at first base. Don't fool around with, and unless you're going to put Riamulto back on first base uh, until he completely heals. But I don't agree with that either. You know, you don't, you know, because you know, first base is a position where you, know, you, you, you can aggravate an injury that currently Riamulto has. So, uh, and if you're going and uh, you know the the catcher they signed. I mean, the guy is really good. He's still still got a lot of play in him, I believe. Uh, and then you, you insert him in there, and uh, I, you've got the uh, Andrew. I think Nappin, I think, you know, I think Tommy in summation. I think in summation, go back to your comments about Bird. I mean, he's one of the most unlucky players ever come up. He was you know, he was almost given the position as first base two years in a row because of injury. Uh, how good he's going to be. You know, now that he's coming back again, he has all the talent in the world. Great left-hand hitter, can do a lot of good things, but he's got to stay healthy, and he hasn't been able to do that. But we're just out of time in this segment, Tom. So hey, thank Don, you very, very Don, much. Before Tom goes, Don uh, Bird was not put on the Phillies roster. Signed to a minor league contract and invited to spring training. Really? Yes. And then the free agent well, catcher, uh, Lacroix. Signed to a minor league contract, invited to spring training. 
So neither one of them is going to be on the uh, Phillies now. Right, right. I find, I find, right. Well, right. Tommy, right thank you are. very much. And you know who we'll get back in touch. I really appreciate your time. Yes, sir, thank Does you. that mean they can't bring them up? They Does that mean they can't bring these two? Does that mean no, these two guys will never play? Well, they have, they'd have to put them on the 40-man roster because that's why they signed them to a minor league contract. Right, right. Okay. And, and maybe they can't, they can't do it. Yeah, they can't do anything okay. with him right now. They, he's, they gotta, he's got to be in a position to be signed to, to move on. I don't think they can move anybody up. There's a certain number on that substitute uh, roster that they can actually use, I think, Roger, too. I don't think he can. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, when does, yeah when I don't does, know what that number roster, is. Does, does the roster expand before the season's no, over? No, no, no. It goes to, no. 30, goes to 30, but 28 when the playoffs come. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Okay. And well, they, and they brought yeah, that, Tom. They brought Mickey Moniak up. I saw that. Yeah. 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 I don't. I don't think it goes back to the. I think it goes to twenty-eight for the playoffs. I'm not positive, but I believe that's the number they're gonna they're gonna use. Okay. Might, well, might be thirty. Uh, I'm at thirty or twenty-eight. I, I I really don't. I don't want to say I know because I don't. Anyway, I thank you, Tommy. Tom, thank, thank you. you. You're the best, PL. Good day, good you, to hear you guys. Thanks. Take right, care. Don, thank you. Have a good. Say hi to Donna. We'll do. Thanks, Roger. I will. Thanks. All right, Mike. We uh, we got we got a lot of hockey. A lot of hockey. A lot of soccer news going on right now. And uh, <laughs> nice nice to get you on, so we get a chance to talk about some of the things that are developing. So uh, I don't know whether you want to talk about the MLS, what you want to talk about first, but pick one out and go. Yeah, I'm sure that you guys want to hear soccer. I'm sure you also want to figure out what the world happened last Sunday. But you got uh, that well, we'll, right, get to, we'll get to the Eagles, Washington. <laughs> That's why you really had me on. Um, no, the MLS uh, put out uh, their remaining September schedule. So uh, the Philadelphia Union will be playing uh, Cincinnati, Inter Miami and a game against Montreal that'll actually be played in Red Bull Stadium in New Jersey because the uh, Canadian teams have to play in America. So what that means is by the end of September, the the Union will have played uh, nine of the eighteen games that they're scheduled to play in the remainder of the of re, uh, the regular season. Uh, the MLS also expanded the playoffs, so the top eight seeds now get into the playoffs in the Western Conference, and the top 10 teams get into the playoffs in the Eastern Conference, with the top six getting uh, by. So you'll have seven play 10 and eight play nine in a uh, mm-hmm. single elimination playoff game. So a little bit of reset on the, uh, the MLS calendar. Uh, over in Europe, the major professional leagues in most of the big countries, uh, France and, and uh England started last week, and uh, this week we'll get the remainder of them with Germany and Italy starting up. So uh, all across the world, uh, professional soccer is being played. And I don't know if you also caught it. The final thing I'll bring up is there's been about five uh, members of the uh, U.S. women's national team who have now signed for teams in Europe ahead of the the 2021 Olympics, uh, headlined by – Oh, geez, I keep uh, – Alex Morgan, who signed for Tottenham Hotspur. 
uh, Sam Hughes right. is over there, Tobin Heath, a couple of other ones. So I think that's a great thing because that means that some of our headliners for the U.S. women's team who are looking to be the first team to hold both an Olympic gold medal and the World Cup title at the same time will get some really good game time against some really good competition ahead of the Olympics. So that's all good things for us. Hopefully they'll, have, they'll be able to stay healthy over there. All right, Mike, thank you very much. Let me get to Roger and to Tommy because I was playing golf Sunday. I didn't see any of the Eagle games. So uh, I'll let you guys talk about the Eagles in Washington because I'm a, a non-existent observer. <laughs> well, Mike, that was a great uh, – I'm really happy about the women's uh, national and uh, those players getting to play, like you said, leading up to the Olympics. I think, Roger, I actually think you're going to – I actually think that you're going to see more. And uh, it's a chance – I don't – the pay rates for them over in Europe have the potential to be higher, but they're not subsidized like they are over here. But I think that over the next couple of weeks as they're negotiating with U.S. soccer and getting all of that sort of stuff, you may see a couple more leave. I believe their transfer window, they're they're, they're – window to move is the same as the men, which means that they have until October 5th to finalize those contracts. Okay. So, so they still, still may have be, a so there's weeks. five right now, but I'm pretty sure that you'll, I wouldn't be surprised if you see uh, five more and you see 10 out of what will be the eventual 18 person roster over there by the end of, by the end of October. Okay. Hey Mike, uh, what? Tommy had sent us a, ahead, a sound bite for the music that was played in the second half of the uh, Eagles game on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was about it around here, Frank. And you can imagine how tough it was for me walking around this area with my Eagles gear on as that was all going oh, on. Oh boy! I can imagine. We had to. I was sitting at the bar, and the bartender is also from Philly. And I said, "You know, if we lose this game, we're just going to end up taking the nastiest shot that we could possibly come up with, <laughs> just to cleanse the taste out of our mouth of this." I don't know what he put in there, but we're calling it. The, we're calling it the Feagles now. The Feagles. <laughs> Putting it on the cocktail menu. Thank God. Uh, what? Arm stayed with you? No, no, he was not. <laughs> the, uh, Mike, uh, what was, what's the temperature of the fandom on uh, Sports Talk Radio uh, in Washington? Shock. Um, everybody was very, very excited, but very few people actually saw that coming, and especially mm-hmm. going into uh, about the two-minute warning, because throughout the first half, the Eagles had dominated that game. And I mm-hmm. think it all started to unravel around the two-minute warning when uh, Doug decided to run a two-minute drill. Carson threw the pick, which led to the first e- the uh, touchdown. And as poor as Dwayne Haskins was playing up until that point, they had almost as you know up until the, about the two-minute warning, they had almost as many passing yard, penalty yards as they passing yards. Mm-hmm. And they put him back in the shotgun. He got to see the field a little bit better. Uh, it, it was a base, quick offense for him, so something that he was very, very, very comfortable with. And you saw them go right in and score. And then after this, it, the halftime, um, they just made the necessary adjustments on defense. And 
to be honest, the, the, the Redskins front four uh, with Payne, Allen, and um, Chase Young and uh, is, is actually pretty good. And you saw that with the eight sacks. And after the, in the second half, Carson Wentz just never looked comfortable. You know, you saw him missing a lot of throws. I think at one point, what, was he four for 16, and he finished up uh, 22 of uh, – he was 14 for 16 at one point in the first half. I think he finished up, what, 22 of 38, which tells me that he only completed uh, eight of his last 22 passes in the game, and you could just see that he, he couldn't get his feet set. He was kind of hearing footsteps. And throws that I expect Carson Wentz to be able to complete were were sailing. So he ended up looking like Haskins in the second half, just short-throwing and overthrowing receivers who throughout most of the day seemed to have a pretty decent jump on the Redskins secondary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in – the defensive, defensive line for the Redskins is outstanding. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, oh, you're saying that yeah, the defensive yeah, I, line is tremendous for the Redskins. It, it, that's what's going to save their defense. Their de- I saw that in the first half. I said they, they, their, their defensive line under Ron Rivera is really good. Um, you can say a little bit. You can say what you want to about their linebackers. I don't think they're really great in coverage, and they can get beat on the run. But they can tackle. The question mark with the Redskins is going to be in that secondary because they don't have much back there. And I think that missing. Uh, I think that missing uh, Lane Johnson and Miles Sanders was huge for the Eagles when I said that they were going to win by double digits it was before mm-hmm. I knew that both Sanders and Johnson were going to be out uh, I think if Miles Sanders had been in there he would have gotten a little bit more running game which would have taken some of the pressure off of Carson Wentz I think that uh, Johnson at uh, right tackle would have um, because you just saw so much getting by the uh, right tackle position I think that that would have helped out a lot and sort of added a little bit of stability to that line. So hopefully Johnson gets back. As bad as this was, I still think that the Eagles can right that ship uh, fairly easily if they can stay safe. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. They've got to get a better – the offensive line's got to uh, really show up and, and improve. And they get Lane Johnson back supposedly Sunday. So, yeah, I Mets think that, that was a got their two runs, four three now Phillies. Mm. But the Grom is hey, out for the Mets. Yeah, yeah, he's gone. Mike, how about yeah, Davis, Davis just hit a two run home run. Yeah. And we were going. Willard's dealing pretty well for a guy with the uh, uh, the, the nail uh, fingernail problem. Did you see that nail, Roger? They showed a close up on it. They showed it. Yeah, yeah. really. Bleacher report. Yeah, they problem. just showed it a couple. They just showed it a couple minutes ago, but it's just sort of all white around. It must have some type of plastic skin or something like that because it showed it very clearly. Yeah. It so, was interesting. Tommy. I just got a uh, 
an announcement the the other day. Of, apparently, the Capitals hired Peter Violette to take over as coach. Mm. Former Flyers what? coach. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Lafayette was going to be Capitals coach. Um, he's just, I think they should have done that move a long time ago because I think Washington's got enough enough strength to get through another another year. The window of opportunity in Washington's coming coming down isn't closing right now, but it's just, Peter Lafayette won a cup in Carolina, had a couple of other teams in the National Hockey League right there, so he could do something with Washington, I think. Like Since Washington, the learners have owned the uh, Washington Capitals, this is only the second time that they've hired a veteran head coach. You're kidding me. No, and the last one that they hired was Barry Trotz, and he took him to a Stanley Cup. So, right. They won that um, one cup, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, in fairness, uh, like they're they're in a position where they're win now. I mean, they're not in a building mm-hmm. or a rejuvenating program. They the, those players are in a situation they where they, they got to win this year, or next year again, as they did a couple of years. But uh, you can't be worried about what happens down the road. So, a veteran coach uh, has to be the answer there. Huh? And the, you know, you're bringing in a coach who has who's very very well respected who's got playoff experience uh, to a veteran team that, like you said, in a, in a win-now mode, I think it's a perfect hire. Um, I think it's a very good move on the Capitals. Again, I, we've all talked about the fact that we're a little bit surprised that they would have let Barry Trotz go, but they believed that uh, they wanted to go with, with – didn't want to pay him, and they were more afraid of losing Todd Reardon to a head coaching gig than they were of losing Barry Trotz, and it backfires – uh, spectacularly. So now you bring in Again. a veteran head coach to replace the veteran head coach, the rookie head coach who should have never replaced the veteran head coach that you should have never left him. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, vaccines, vaccines getting up well, there. Mike, thank Mike you very and... much. Doug Hamilton is standing in the wings, and we got the U.S. Open coming up this weekend, mm-hmm. among other things. I want to know about the Ravens. You took care of the of, of Washington Force. I didn't even know what the, what is their, what is their nickname now before I let you go. Do they have one? Oh, I guess he's gone. Nope. Anyway, maybe, maybe, maybe Doug. Maybe Doug knows. I don't know. I didn't even know what their name is. But anyway, uh, the open is up. Football but... team. <laughs> hey, it. Don. No, they're the, the Washington Womanizers. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever they are. But anyway, Doug, tell us about the Ravens because man, they jumped off to a big first. They're one of the they're one of the teams that came out of the gate looked like they knew what they were doing. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, um, I, I actually was off on Sunday. Um, I had uh, just a, an incredible day watching football. As you guys know, um, you know, I, I kind of, I do my thing with fantasy football, so I'm, I'm more in tune with the NFL than just the Baltimore Ravens. I'm obviously mm-hmm. looking at certain players, but. Um, you know, the, the Ravens looked really good. I mean, let's, it was an inter-division rivalry between the Browns. Certainly they got the opportunity to play at home, which is always good. You know, not, not right. obviously that that was a, a tremendous benefit with no fans in the stands, but uh, to sleep in their own beds I'm sure meant something to them. Um, Lamar Jackson uh, certainly picked up where he left off being um, the MVP from last year. You know, their defense looked really good. Um, you know, they were able to handle the, the Cleveland Browns and, you know, they, I don't know if anybody really even broke a sweat in that game because they just, 
they just looked really good. I mean, they you know the, the running game was was exactly what it was from last year. You add J.K. Dobbins to the mix, who uh, kind of worked in there and got some carries. I mean, Lamar Jackson had some rushing yards, but wasn't really um, forced to run the ball as he was last year. Um, I thought he looked really good throwing the football. And you know, for matters of discussion, I'd like to say that Mark Andrews is is is, is just as good as any tight end in the NFL. Um, you know, look, I understand. Uh, George Kittle and Travis Kels are making the big dollars, but Mark Andrews is a very good tight end. Um, and, you know, the uh, the Baltimore Ravens looked like uh, the 14-2 and two Baltimore Ravens from last year. So I was very excited to watch them. Um, I look forward to uh, the game this week. Um, and I'm in full football mode in terms of uh, enjoying the sport and the season and this time of year. So I'm, I'm loving it. Roger? The um, I, I think the Ravens are uh, at least the uh, second best team in the AFC. Uh, yeah, you know, but at, at, at worst, okay, and they may wind up being the For best sure. team. You know, and uh, but they just I think they have it all. And you know, the one thing uh, that I really uh, impressed with, and we talked about it, Doug, many many times. Their front office is so good with drafting yeah. and, and developing, yeah. whereas the Eagles have no clue, okay? I mean, you look at uh, the players that they drafted in the first round in the last couple of years, they aren't even playing. But that's right. what really gets me, and it's been like that from the days when they were the Browns with Ozzie Newsom, sure. and, you know, and now it's continued on with the uh, – uh, the new general manager, and I know you played golf with Ozzy Newsom, uh, or you had him at the yeah. club. So uh, we were talking sure. one time about what a class act he is. Well, Roger, the the evaluation of talent, um, you know, is it's it's no different than uh, you know be- they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, the, the evaluation of talent, you know, by and large, uh, is what separates a lot of these. Uh, NFL teams or any team in professional sports from being winning and losing. So, you know, over the course of time, I mean, the Ravens have a very high value uh, on draft capital, you know, and so when they talk about making trades, um, you know, they're, they're not as willing as maybe some other teams are. And the value that they assign to those uh, draft picks when they actually make their picks, I mean, granted, you know, everybody looks and they say, okay, well, the Ravens drafted, you know, Jonathan Ogden, they drafted Ed Reed, they drafted Ray Lewis, they drafted Todd Heap. They dra- I mean, all these players that were good players. Well, guess what? From time to time, you miss on first-round draft picks. And we can look at the Ravens, you know, roster over the course of the year and say, okay, well, they picked Matt Elam in the first round. He was a bust. They picked Prashad Perryman in the first round. He was a bust. Um, but guess what? I bet you those same years they hit on second, third, fourth, fifth round draft picks that became a part of their organization um, through advanced scouting that made some level of difference uh, in whether they won or lost. So, um, you know, from top to bottom, you're right. They, they, they look at certain things. You look at uh, picking J.K. Dobbins, which at the time I wasn't a big fan of. They drafted him in the second round. I guarantee you many teams had him as a first-round grade, and they, they were able to get him in the second round. He will make a right. difference in their football team through this season. Um, 
you know, they have a number of guys on their offensive line. Look, look at Orlando Brown. Orlando Brown was like a fourth-round draft pick. He's their starting right tackle who's every bit as good as anybody uh, who, who plays right tackle in the NFL. Uh, Mark Andrews was a third- or fourth-round draft pick. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. So somehow or another, their advanced scouting is able to find these guys, and, and they're able to – uh, work their magic in terms of the draft. So, yeah, they, they've been a very clean organization, uh, not just in the talent they've drafted, but also, guess what, in the character and, and, and type of football player that they've drafted. Well, Doug, I think you also have to think in terms of anybody that uh, talks about pro football, talks about the importance of either the end of two or three, four, and five. That if you're going to build a ball club, you're going to build those players are going to be the guys that are going to make your team a consistently good player over a long period of time. Sure. It's not the first round. Absolutely. It's not even the early. It's three, four, five. You've got to be able to make money yep. in those rounds. And that's where Baltimore sure. is really – that's where they really have yeah. got a, a shiny star. I mean, look at, uh, look at Marshall Yanda, who some people may debate he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, I don't know. I'll – I'll throw his hat in the ring. I mean, he was a third or fourth round draft pick, you know? Um, you know, they've, they've had uh, guys that have played on both sides of the football that have been, you know, incredible football players um, that that haven't cost a whole lot of money. I mean, you know, look at, the, look at a guy like Matt Stover who, you know, even look at Justin Tucker, you know, who has been some of the most accurate kickers in the NFL history. Uh, right. That are that are game they're game changers, you know. I mean, when you have a guy like Justin Tucker uh, that can kick a 50-yard field goal, like you know, you know, like he just woke up, like it's no big deal. I mean, guess what? I mean that that changes the the face of how the game is played. So, um, exactly. you know, I mean, look at look at the Ravens when they drafted Lamar Jackson. I mean, there were a number of people who said, you know, what are you doing? They moved back into the first round to select Lamar Jackson. <laughs> And I, I don't know anybody on planet Earth that would have said that in Lamar Jackson's second year that he would have been the MVP. You could have taken any amount of money on that bet, and, and people would have looked at you like you were crazy. And look what happened. So, so they're doing something right. That's all I can tell you. Well, listen, I'm right in, that, right in that line. You did not think he was going to be that great a player right off the bat. I thought it was going to take him a little time, but if, you're right. I mean, they, they were right, and I was wrong all the way on that one. But the one thing that uh, well, your overview, because you had a chance to see a lot of football this weekend, and uh, yeah. both Roger and Tommy as well, I didn't see as much as you fellas. The level yeah. of play, according to most of the newspapers and most of the writers, was very poor. What did you think? <laughs> it's terrible. Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, we didn't have a preseason and, and the limitations with being able to practice with pads on. Um, so right. I certainly understand uh, the, that nature of it. But I'll be honest with you, the football games that I saw, um, I thought were all pretty clean. I mean, I, I didn't think – I watched the Ravens uh, game. I watched the Kansas City Chiefs Thursday night game. I watched the Steelers-Giants. And I watched a little bit of the uh, the Bills-Jets. And just a maybe a quarter of the, the Tennessee Denver game. And look, there's there's some bad football teams um, in the NFL, and we know that's going to happen every year because you know as it shakes out, it takes about two or three weeks, I'd say, for people to uh, kind of position themselves as either playoff contenders or also Rams or you know top ten draft picks. But I, I guess what I saw was 
I didn't see a whole lot of like penalties. So I, I would say that the games that I saw were all pretty clean. Um, mm-hmm. I think what you saw was probably, um, you know, issues with um, injuries for sure because of no preseason. Um, conditioning, I think, was an issue. Um, but I, I would say, by and large, most of what I saw was if if somebody would have said to me, "You're going to watch these four football games. Tell me what mm-hmm. you think," and I and I gave you my answer. You know, devoid of having a preseason football, I would say it looked pretty good. That would just be my opinion. Um, you know, so I didn't think it was that bad at all. Uh, Doug, the only thing I care right now is what the Lightning's going to be doing tomorrow night before they, I get in watching football up there. That's all. Yeah. They get hockey. Get the Lightning winning this, get the winning this cup. I need to go back to football on that, so. Listen, I, I want to know what uh, Don H- Don Henderson's U.S. Open odds are in case somebody wants to make a bet. There we go. Who do you like? Well, you know what? I don't I don't know what what uh, what odds makers you're using. Whether you're tapped into like Las Vegas here or or New Jersey or who you're using, but I think I saw Justin Thomas at fourteen to one. Is that true? Mm. Yep, that's correct. I would I would take Justin Thomas all day long at fourteen to one. Um, John Rahm, I think, was ten to one. I'm not sure how I feel about that. No, he's nine, nine um, to one, nine to one. Um, you know, McElroy like sixteen to one. McElroy sixteen yeah. to one. Yeah, I saw that. I wouldn't touch that one. I'd rather have Justin Thomas at fourteen. Um. I saw. Can, yeah, but can Justin like, Thomas? Can, can these guys? I mean, can can Dustin Johnson continue to do what he's done over the last what 15, 20 days? I mean, uh, as they said yeah. in most of the papers today, no matter what, how good he is, you can't pick up the win this one again. <laughs> right. Well, you know, listen. If if you're betting a, an exact or a trifecta, you got to put Dustin Johnson in there. I know he's eight to one, but. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to call that chalk, you got to throw him in there. I tell you, um, I think Tony Finau at 35 to one would be worth a bet for me. Um, that's that's pretty high. I think Tiger was like 50 to one. Yeah, 50 was it higher than that? Wait a minute. I think he wouldn't be higher than that. I think he is 50. I think that was 50 to one. I'm not sure. Well, and Mickelson's I mean, right in there was, too. Yeah, he was like 60 to 1. Uh, Justin Rose yeah. was in that 50 to 55, 60 range. I mean, look, if you're looking right. for if you're if you're looking to hit a home run and you had a couple extra bucks, I mean, and you were betting on this, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I I mean, seriously, how can you not bet either Justin uh, Justin Rose or uh, Tiger Woods at 50 or 60 to 1 just to you know complete the superfecta there if you if you were betting about four people? So I mean, I, I don't know. That's you know, I mean, it's it's pretty wide open. I mean, Wingfoot is. I was watching the uh, live at Wingfoot last night. Um, Randall Chambly was was pretty philosophical last night, and I I enjoyed listening to him. Um, right. You know those those greens are pretty diabolical there, um, and that the rough is is certainly a, a problem um, if you're missing the fairway, and we know that to be true in, in the U.S. Open. I mean, certainly they're going to make this. You know, pretty difficult say, to try to when keep. they play this course, they're not going to come in five mm-hmm. and ten under here. I mean, they're going to be two no, over, no, one no, over, really. three over, something like that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the the USDA's objective here is to keep people close to par. So, um, you know, they, they they take corrective measures with, you know, length of rough, and in some cases it's going to be three or four inches long, um, which is going to be a problem to just you know get a wedge on it and get it back into the fairway. And, you know, ultimately your US your US Open champion is going to be the guy that's going to be making six foot six footers for par. Um, so whoever that individual might be, and, and again, I'll, I'll take my chances with Justin Thomas at, four, at fourteen to one if I was making a bet. Um, he's a really good putter. Um, you know that guy Colin Morikawa who uh, uh, won the PGA was like eighteen to one. I mean, you yeah, know, whatever. That's I what mean, he is. He, eighteen he may, to one. He may keep it going, but like I said, I mean, you, you, you can't no, knock just Dustin Johnson at, at uh, what was he seventeen to two or mathematically eight and a half to one so um you know he's just been playing phenomenal golf and he is just in a different place than most of those people are whether he can continue that in the u.s open or not i don't know uh but um i, I would bet on him to give him a chance well i'll give you i'll give you what i think are two sleepers one 28 to one and, and that's burger i think burger is who was nowhere for he, he died for a couple of years but he started to come back he's had a half decent season this year i I think he's got a shot because he keeps the ball on the fairway. But the player that I would yeah. select if I were betting at 25 to 1 would be Webb Simpson. Webb Simpson's the best driver, okay. I think. And, and I would take him yeah. because these fairways are going to be very, very narrow. you got to play yeah. on the fairway. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. So Webb Simpson yeah. would be one of the guys I would pick just as out, out of the dark. Well, I mean, I would say, you know, at the end of the day, obviously, if, if he's driving the ball well and he's in the fairway, then I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, you know, Webb Simpson's not necessarily the kind of guy that, you know, if, if he's missing the fairway and he's and he's not, you know, in, in ideal conditions, he's not exactly one of the strongest players on tour in terms of no. advancing it out of the rough. Um, so that certainly could be a problem. And that's a very polarizing mercurial pick. Um, but hence the 25 to 1, that makes sense. Um, yeah. You know they had a had a terrific just in your belly work. They had a terrific article on uh, how poor, uh, unfortunate, and I say poor, unfortunate was that this will be maybe the final time in the New York area you'll get a chance to see Tiger Woods play. And of course, there's not going to be anybody there because of the of the, the uh, pandemic. Right. But uh, you know they're they're saying well, that uh, he and Mickelson he and Mickelson are in a situation now. Mickelson said uh, his chances of winning are very slight. Uh, he's got to drive the ball exceptionally well. He's got to keep it in the fairway. And he said, uh, yeah. uh, and what was it, uh, when he lost the last time, uh, you know, his driver killed him on He didn't take a three-wood with him, uh, uh, and he t- only took a four-wood with him, and, and uh, the three-wood killed him on the 18th hole in the final round because yeah. he couldn't reach right. the, the bend in the in the, in the uh, uh, in the fairway. Sure. And uh, so well, he he was really he was really saying, look, this is my this is my final shot. I'd have to hit every shot as well as I can hit it. And he said that's the only right. chance I have to to uh, to win the tournament. Well, I mean, what you what you love about Phil Mickelson is also what you hate about him. You know, um, you know, he last time he was there, he obviously should have won that, uh, but he didn't. Um, right. You know, and, you can go back through the, the annals of Phil Mickelson and, you know, the, the great shot he hit up against the tree at Augusta that knocked it on the green uh, on the par five there uh, from the pine straw. I mean, he's hit, you know, some of the most incredible and amazing shots. 
that you look at and say, okay, well, gosh, you know, that was that was really awesome. But you know, the uh, the idea of him attempting that shot is also what gets him into the trouble of not making the shot. Hence, right. you know, some of the losses he's incurred over the years. So, I mean, he's a he's a gambler type of a player, um, no and that's won him as many that's won him as many tournaments as it, as it has lost in tournaments. Um, in the process. I was a little, I was a little surprised, Doug, and maybe you, because you, you know, you're, you're a pro. We're only guys out looking on the grass. Uh, I was surprised it would be that much difference for him between not carrying the three wood that day and using the four. I, I, I uh, yeah. it doesn't seem to me that it would make that much difference that he wouldn't be able to make it around the bend with the, uh, with the four wood as easily as he would with the three. Sure. Well. What you have to understand, Don, is that most of those players, you know, it's it's one thing like you know you're a you're a member at you know Joe Smo's Country Club and you know you have 14 clubs in your bag and you, you use them accordingly. Well, these guys right. are traveling throughout the country playing these different courses, so they'll insert or delete certain clubs based on length of course right. or style of course or or whatever. So certainly that day or for this tournament. Um, you know, during his research of practice rounds and, and whatever, he thought he had selected the right club um, in right. the forward. Um, and obviously he made the wrong choice uh, when it came to, you know, either reaching par fives or, or hitting that off the tee on certain holes that, you know, left him in precarious situations with yardages or whatever. So, um, you know, from time to time, I mean, look, you know, guys carry a, you know, 52, a 56, and a 60-degree wedge. I mean, some guys go 54, right. 58, and, just depends on the course you're playing and you know what style of shots that you're going to need to hit whether it's you know high and soft or uh you know yardage based selections for wedges or hard pan or bunkers or all those sorts of things they consider when they um you know construct their, wind, their bags wind and their conditions losses. i mean it all makes sense um you know i mean hell the you talk about the advent of the driving iron and the two iron and the one iron and the three iron and hybrids and all these certain things. I mean, they, these guys aren't, you know, weekend golfers that hit a good shot and are surprised by it. You know, certainly they, they know their yardages to the five or 10 yard increments of of what they're trying to do with certain shots um, and and select their clubs accordingly to, to play those shots. I mean, if you ask a guy on tour, to hit a 97-yard wedge, he's going to be within a yard or two of, of his mark. It's just, you know, they're that good. So, you know, they, they have special grinds. Yeah. I just said tick-tick-tock right in my ears, though. <laughs> another great week. Another well, great we'll, see, show, we'll, see how our, we'll see how our picks made out. Doug, thank you very, very right. much, as always. Doug, Frank, another great job. Tommy, you hailed things yeah. well tonight. I'd like you to repeat that second question you had. For uh, for uh, Mike Schulte, I, I I didn't get all of it, but if you get a chance, write that down. I want to I want to go back and read that over. Roger, just want to make sure that the buffet. Have a good one, Mr. Henderson. Tommy, take care. Good to talk to everybody. And as usual, Commander Carol, you are the glue that holds us all together. God bless. The best. The best in the world. That's what we're very lucky to have him. Like to thank. Only wasn't coming on the show this week, and uh, Frank, for my family, your family, be safe out there, and let's go lightning for Pete's sake. Two-way hockey guys, we can do this. We want to bring the cup back to Tampa Bay. The Tampa Bay Lightning. For more information, log on to TampaBayLightning.com. For Frank, for my family, your family, God bless. Have a beautiful week. Thanks, Tony.
Ladies and gentlemen, these programs are brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation for the men and women of the United States Armed Forces and the men and women of police and fire services. When you're out there, and please, please, when you're out there and see somebody in uniform, let them know you know they're there. This is very, very tough times for men and women in uniform. <coughs> uh, this program is Foster Lies in the Line of Duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman David Curtis, Patrolman Jeffrey Colcap, Sergeant Thomas Badinger, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazowitz, Detective Randy Bell, Detective Ricky Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Hendler, Lieutenant Mike Serba, Newcastle County Police, Patrolman and Uncle Chris Vanilla, Lakeland Cleavy, Chief Al Hogel, Longbow Keys Police Department, Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department, Highway Patrolman Alonzo Moses, Philadelphia Highway Patrolman. Highway Patrolman Brian Lazaro, Philadelphia Highway Patrol. Highway Patrolman Brian Murphy, Plymouth Township, PA Highway Patrol. Lieutenant Bob Neary, Philadelphia Fire Department. Sergeant Mike Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Office. Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department. Deputy Jonathan Scott Pine, Orange County Sheriff's Department. Patrolman Robert Germain, Windermere, Florida Police Department. Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol. Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department. Patrolman Charlie Condit, Tarpon Springs Police Department. Hillsborough County Deputy Sheriff Charlie Kotlop, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Sergeant Rodney Bond, Delaware State Police, Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Arthur Hope, Wilmington Fire Department, FDLE Special Inspector Vinny Galaccio, Delaware State Trooper Stephen Bauer, Corporal Stephen Bauer, Kissimmee Police Officer Matt Baxter, Kissimmee Sergeant Sam Howard, Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department. Deputy Bill Gentry, Philadelphia. <coughs> Deputy Bill Gentry, Highland County Sheriff's Department. Uh, Deputy Clay Zerba, Clay County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Natalie Corona, Delhi County Sheriff's Department. Deputy April Rodriguez, Pasco County Sheriff's Department. Officer Bob McKetchen, Philadelphia Kentucky Police Department. And Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol. My brothers and sisters, although you may be 10-7 at this point in time, at some time will be 1010 at the table of the Lord until that time. May the rose rise up to meet you. May the winds be always at your back. May the rains fall softly on your fields and the sunshine lightly on your feet, face. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your families always in the hallow of his hands. Good night. God bless and have a great week. <laughs> Thank you.
Bob, we love you and we miss you. 